0: back to Talking Tudors episode 128. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. Today's episode of Talking Tudors is sponsored by The Explorers, a podcast that travels back through time to discover what it was like to be a woman of the past. Each season walks listeners through a particular time and place, immersing us in women's lived experiences. Deeply researched, fun and immersive, the show dives into everyday issues history buffs love to learn about. Everything from what women were wearing to how they went to the bathroom and what they did for fun. Host Kate Armstrong explores the lives of famous figures, but also the lesser-known spies, warriors, queens, crusaders, courtesans, and many more. The show's third season travels back to Tudor, England, and is absolutely full of details and stories that would delight any fan of talking Tudors. The current season includes guest appearances from Tudor experts such as Ruth Goodman and Elizabeth Norton. I myself have done an interview with The Explorers, so keep an eye out for that. I highly recommend you check out the show online at theexplorerspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune in to every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors Patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com or click on the Be A Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. September's prize is an Elizabeth I acrylic block, the perfect addition to any bookshelf, desk or study. Thank you to Philippa from British History Tours for sponsoring this great prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors Live Talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. This weekend, I'll be chatting to Dr. Owen Emerson and Claire Ridgway about their new book, The Berlins of Hever Castle. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for the event. Now on to today's episode, I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about the beauty cultures of 16th century England is Victoria Munn. Victoria is a current PhD candidate in art history at the University of Auckland, researching the cultural value of hair colour and the practical means undertaken to dye hair in early modern Europe. She has previously studied the beauty cultures of early modern England, Italy and France and spent much time dissecting and testing the beauty recipes that were circulating in the 16th and 17th centuries. In 2019, she was awarded the Brooks Fellowship in conjunction with the Delphina Foundation and Tate Britain. She hopes to undertake her research project focusing on the depiction of early modern women artists in British galleries at Tate Britain in 2022. conversations coming up straight after this short musical break courtesy of guitarist john sales Welcome to Talking Tutors, Victoria. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes, I'm very excited to be chatting to you today. So I guess let's start by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background.
1: Sure. Um, well, my name is Victoria Munn. I'm a PhD student at the University of Auckland in art history. A couple of years ago, I was doing a research project with Erin Griffey, and she was getting me to look through some beauty recipes and it was just so fascinating to me that in the end I decided to do my master's on them on Italian and French beauty cultures and now I've continued working with them for my PhD which is looking at hair dye practices and hair colour in early modern Italy and no sorry early modern Europe so Italy, France and England are my focus points
0: fantastic and it's such a fascinating area I can understand why you've become intrigued by it (laughs) and we are I am going to ask you about the hair dye because I always get questions about that but before I do that can you just tell us a little bit about the the beauty ideals of the time and maybe if we can focus on Tudor England that would be great.
1: Yes well I was sort of thinking we might focus on the woman of Tudor court um, sort of those elite women right and I had an idea often in the early modern period, women were described in a sort of descending anatomical catalogue, moving from top to toe. So I thought I might do that for you, you know, sort of going through the, all the ideal features. So one's hair ideally would be golden blonde, wavy, quite fine and long. You wanted a broad, uh, clear, high forehead. Your brows, you wanted to have them in sort of rounded gently in the shape of Cupid's bow and dark, but you didn't want dark eyelashes, not like today. Then you wanted a narrow, small nose, small ears, a small chin, and inherent in all of this is this huge idea of a fair face, right? So white skin basically, but you didn't want to be pale or wan, you wanted to have good color. So that was sort of like a flush of redness in the cheeks and in your lips. Alongside this you wanted to have um, a nice shine or luster to your skin. Um, Your teeth should be white, which was quite tricky at the time I think with the sort of dental standards. They wanted to be white, uniform, neat and symmetrical. A long neck small pert breasts kind of like apples quite hard and your hands were also really important because if you think about dressed women, hands were sort of one of the few places that it would actually be seen so you wanted to have fair hands like your face and long elegant narrow fingers and then just in terms of general body size you didn't want to be you know too big, but you also didn't want to be too thin as to seem sort of malnourished. So there was a definitely a line to walk. And you can just imagine with all of these very specific ideals how tricky it was for women to sort of keep up with them all.
0: Goodness, I know I was ticking them off as you were going, and I didn't tick many off, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't think I would have been very popular in um, Tudor England. <laughs> So can you tell us about some of the literature or the, the ideas that underpinned all these ideals? Where does it all come from?
1: Sure. Well, the, the main sort of idea um, of the human body and health came from Galenic humoral theory, which saw the body as sort of made up of these four humors, right? Yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, blood. And beauty ideals were based in this theory because it was understood that your outward appearance was demonstrative of your inner health, your inner sort of balance of these humors and your physiological constitution. And um, so that that came out in Galen's time, but then this was also subscribed to in the medieval era and then it carried on through. So for example, uh, like I told you about good color, right? Having that nice flush to your cheeks, that would show a good balance of blood. So blood was coursing to your surface. So that was seen as a sign of health. So we have Galen. And then we also have um, medieval literature. Um, Medieval poets had a big hand in in these beauty ideals because people like Petrarch would single out different features of a woman's body and sort of describe it as, and this sort of created the sort of beauty ideals that we know today. And this literary tradition sort of, was picked up on, um, not just in the literature, but, you know, by everyone, this was how they understood beauty. So we've got those two main things. We've got Galen and then we've got medieval literature, medieval poetry.
0: And you've touched on a little bit about obviously why this is going to be important to women at the Tudor court and in, in, in Tudor England, but do you want to maybe go, go into that a little bit more?
1: Sure. So uh, there's maybe three main reasons this was so important. Firstly, your health. So if your face was sort of the most visible demonstration of your health, it was a mirror of health. You really wanted it to look, you know, fair and shiny, right? Um, Not only just to show that you were, you know, healthy, but also for fertility, of course, you know, if you could carry a child. So we have health. And then we have status. So um, your complexion especially was linked to your class and your social standing. Castiglione's Book of the Courtier, which was translated into England into English in the 16th century, said that a good courtier must be beautiful in appearance. So it was, you know, one's beauty was actually connected to your place in court with health, status, and then also goodness. So Neoplatonic writings were very prevalent and they linked your beauty to your inner goodness, your inner virtue. So looking good on the outside, you know, it was sort of that idea of be- being beautiful inside and out, I guess. And this was connected to religion as well. So beauty was said to to come from God and and sort of a measure of, you know, it's God's hand that's given you this beauty.
0: So presumably then obviously this is going to be very important to the Tudor queens and the, the queen's consort as well. So can you talk to us a little bit about how it extended to, it extended into queenship as well?
1: Sure. So I mean, they, these queens and consorts must have been just so well-versed in these beauty ideals. And of course, they really cared about their health and their status and their goodness being shown, you know, in the canvas, which was their face. But it was also connected to uh, ideas of sovereignty and divinity. So I have a little excerpt in a um, 1592 speech made to Elizabeth. Someone said, it is her beauty only creates her queen Is that which adds a commanding power to every syllable. Beauty is the image of the creator in the rhetoric of heaven. So her beauty is said to sort of enhance her power, right? And demonstrate, you know, her her as the image of the creator. Um, So you can imagine how important emphasizing one's sovereignty and divinity would have been, especially for Elizabeth. And it's sort of like almost a symbiotic relationship between her beauty and her power they both sort of work together and bolster each other up so that's Elizabeth but then just um, in terms of courtship these women were being assessed so carefully in terms of their beauty when Elizabeth of York died Henry VII was sort of thinking about remarrying and he actually drew up a list of all the qualities he wanted in a woman including her looks and he was you know very interested in her visage, her face, and the length of her neck. He wanted someone with a long neck, presumably, and the size of her breasts. And then, just keeping on the breasts theme, and, um, when Henry VIII, when Anne of Cleves arrived in England um, to marry Henry VIII, he said that her breasts are so slack in other parts of the body in such sort that he somewhat suspected her virginity. So you know, they got off to a rocky start and then he's sort of criticizing her breasts and not only criticizing her breasts, but sort of connecting that to her morality, right? Her um, her virginity, sort of suspecting her for not being moral just based on her appearance.
0: Yeah, it's so fascinating, isn't it? I was just thinking about Henry VIII and obviously some of the choices he made and, and some of the women have Many of the ideals you've been talking about—the fair hair and the fair skin—but obviously, someone like Anne Boleyn, apart from the neck, which I thought of straight away, she was obviously not. I think her skin was described as swarthy, and she also had—we don't know exactly, but maybe Albany, darker hair than the kind of golden. So it's interesting that even though they're the ideals of the time, that he was obviously so captivated by her personality and her charisma yeah. that he he didn't really worry about that fact, I suppose.
1: But then you've got to remember that other people were still, um, you know, they were observing her, writing about her. And um, there's just so many descriptions of queens and consorts' appearance. And yeah, there's some quite unfavorable descriptions of um, Anne of Bole- Anne Boleyn. So yeah. I guess it goes both ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So Henry was just captivated and didn't care, but other people were more concerned. Maybe with she had a bit them. of
1: je ne sais quoi. <laughs> I, think she,
0: I think she did. Absolutely. Now mm. let's talk a little bit about Elizabeth again and and her and some of the beauty and the myths that's kind of surround her.
1: Well, when, when your listeners think about the early modern period and cosmetics, they might think of her because of this idea that she had such a thick layer of white paint on her skin, right? And may maybe a little bit to do with the way that she's represented, you know, um, by painters. But I think it can also be attributed to um, popular culture, you know, uh, movies like um, the one about Mary, Queen of Scots with Margot Robbie. Um, there's just, I just saw a picture earlier, she's just got such a thick white layer of paint. But I guess I'd underscore that there's actually no reliable contemporary sources to tell us that she wore thick lead paint. There's one Jesuit who recounted a rumor on a London street that she wore it, but um, that's obviously not so reliable that he was a Jesuit. So I guess we've just got to sort of call into question the sort of popular idea about Elizabeth and her embrace of face paint. But that said, she was very concerned with her appearance. She was uh, known to uh, elicit compliments quite a bit, sort of fish for compliments about her beauty and, and talk about it quite a lot. You can imagine when she got smallpox, that must have just absolutely concerned her so much. If you think about the sort of honeycomb pits that it might leave, um, it'd be pretty hard to uh, get rid of them, I guess. But the second time she got smallpox in 1572, I think she didn't, well, she wrote to someone that she didn't get these little pits and she was just so elated that she'd avoided the smallpox scars. It must have just been such a big worry for people in terms of keeping up their beauty, keeping up their appearance. And she was sort of uh, known to compare herself to others. When a Scottish ambassador visited her, he recounted that her hair was more reddish than yellow, curled in appearance naturally, and she desired to know of me what colour was reputed best. And whether my queen's hair or hers was best, and which of the two were fairest. So you can see she's, you know, trying, she's competing with Mary, Queen of Scots, with their appearances. And she's clearly just hoping to, you know, come out on top of the two of them. He was quite diplomatic, I think, in his response, but she was persistent in trying to elicit a compliment.
0: Yes, poor guy. That must have been quite an uncomfortable conversation, I imagine. (laughs) Um, Now let's touch on the hair dye, because I find that this is something that comes up quite a lot. I I quite love looking at portraits and and I share a lot of portraits. And of course, hair colour looks very different, even if we're looking at the same person painted over a period of time. And of course, now we change our hair colour. You know, a photo of me last week might not be the same as this week. How popular was hair dye at the time? And Is there any evidence that the Tudor queens were actually changing their hair color at all?
1: Well, the first point I would make is that um, you could change your hair color with dye or also with wigs. So Elizabeth definitely used periwigs to sort of change her hair color. I haven't come across any evidence yet to suggest that Tudor queens did use these dyes, but indeed they were ubiquitous. There were just so many different types of hair dyes that you could use if they didn't use them, I'm sure they would have been aware of them. And I'm sure some sort of some of these recipes would have been circulating at court, no doubt.
0: Yeah, because I did read, I think I read that they were quite popular with elite women in Europe. In Italy, I think from memory, perhaps was one of the countries where it was quite common for women to be dyeing their hair, which I think is, is really fascinating.
1: The Italians were sort of, the trendsetters I guess for a lot of these beauty rituals um, especially Venice so often they the ideas would start off in Italy then move to France and then across the channel to England. Now let's
0: touch on on men of course because they're, they're, they there I imagine there were beauty ideals for men as well so can you maybe tell us a little bit about them and maybe apply some of those to, to Henry VIII and perhaps how he presented himself?
1: Yes, so, I mean, of course, they had reason enough to want to show their goodness, their virtue, right, their status, their health. They were all, you know, important to them as well. In my opinion, they weren't held to nearly as high a standard as the woman. And added to the sort of ideals we've discussed is their stature. So they wanted to be, like, very broad-shouldered, show their sort of physicality and strength. Uh, If you think about Hans Holbein's portraits of Henry VIII He sort of dominates the composition, doesn't he? You know, he's got these broad shoulders, barely any neck, his arms like a kimbo, and his legs are in such a wide stance. You can just see he's wanting to sort of take up the composition. And I think that partly at least comes down to him wanting to sort of show his stature. Fair skin was also important and having that sort of luster in, in your skin. Uh, Timothy McCall has written a lot about men in the 15th century northern Italian courts and how important brilliance and luminosity and shine was for their image and the, the one thing that men had to worry about that women didn't was their beard. You get a lot of recipes for beard dyes and beard upkeep, beard growth, concerns about alopecia, baldness and Henry VIII. In particular was I think he chopped and changed with his beard you know he got rid of it and brought it back but there's a a wonderful story about the field of the cloth of gold in 1520 when um Henry VIII and Francis I were going to meet And Henry VIII decides, okay, I'm going to grow my beard. This is in 1519, the year before. He says, I'm going to grow my beard right until we meet at the Field of the Cloth of Gold. And Francis I hears about this as well. He says, well, okay, well, I'm going to to grow my beard too. And apparently, Henry VIII's beard looked like a beard of gold because his whiskers were kind of uh, red, so it sort of looked (sighs) gold, which I think must have been quite nice. And But the trouble came when uh, Catherine of Aragon didn't like the beard at all, and she sort of demanded to have Henry Vietz take it off, take it off. And eventually he did. He gave in to her, but the court wasn't happy because they were thinking that Henry's broken his pact with Francis I, and they've just sort of become, you know, like sort of like political allies. So... Henry VIII got cold feet, and just a couple of days before the Field of the Cloth of Gold, he's like, "Okay, I'm gonna grow it back." But I think you can imagine, with just a couple of days' notice, it wasn't quite—you know—it mustn't have been more than stubble.
0: Yes, wouldn't have been that impressive, I don't think. <laughs> so what are some of the practices then? Let's talk about some of the nitty gritty. What are some of the practices that were undertaken in this quest to attain these these crazy beauty ideals? Maybe just some specific recipes too
1: would be really cool. I just don't know where to start, Natalie. There are just so many. <laughs> so many, many I know. So many, you know, they're in the for- form of waters and oils and unguents and ointments and And you can steam the face, you could use masks like we sort of have face masks today, they were both curative and preventative so they might remove um, something that you didn't like, or they might prevent you from, you know, gaining wrinkles or gray hair or something like that. And the other sort of point that I wanted to stress was that there's not only sort of makeup, they're not only painting the face, they're what Edith Snook has called beautifying physics, so wanting to enhance one's natural beauty right. You're not covering up anything you're you're correcting your flaws, I guess, and so there's a whole host of ingredients, some of them must have been more accessible than others and obviously different price ranges, but there are animal products. So animal fats, animal bloods, eggs, um, lots of milks, and you've got lots of plant ingredients, you know, flowers, leaves, um, plant roots, resins coming from the trees, and then just things that we have in our everyday kitchen now, like wine and lemons and beer, water, different types of water. You could, I guess, you could really choose what you spent and and how difficult your approach was going to be. So some um, recipes might just take you know a couple of minutes at the stove, others might take days or even months to to prepare. You know, you've got to let things dry or distill. So I, yeah, there's a big range of of difficulty and complexity and cost. But um, one of the most pervasive recipes, I thought I'd share with you uses rosemary flowers or leaves and white wine and I thought this was a good one because people might have access to them at home and you just need some white wine and oh here in New Zealand we've got lots of rosemary um, growing on the street so all you need to do is pick off the purple flowers or the leaves and then you can soak them or you can boil them in the white wine So then you just washed your face with this, Um, but it's actually also really good for your breath. They said you can also use it for the breath. And uh, this one's a good one because it also makes your house smell delicious. Like the rosemary just fills the whole house. So you can imagine with a sort of house in Tudor, England, that a nice smell might have been very welcome. And then if you wanted to uh, curl your hair anyone wanting to curl their hair at home Um, one recipe actually just suggests using a hot tobacco pipe which I guess is kind of like a modern day curling iron right Um, or you could use gum Arabic you can find that at most artistic supply stores now you could use beer and egg white and then you just well it doesn't actually say this but I'm sort of imagining you sort of apply it to your hair and roll it up and stick it and then leave it. Often the um, recipes are kind of quite ambiguous in their instructions um, and in their quantity. So you've got to sort of do a lot of guesswork to figure out um, if you're doing it right or not. And I also just wanted to touch on the idea of sympathetic magic. So oftentimes the recipes employ ingredients that carry characteristics that were desired. So often if you're wanting to make your face fair, There are things like lilies, and milk, and ivory, and pearls ground. Um, So they're clearly trying to impart those qualities that those things have onto their skin, or um, using roses to your gums nice and pink. There's a lot of that. There's also some instances where litharge of gold is used, which is just a mixture of litharge and lead. But you can imagine this word gold is sort of um, ubiquitous in the descriptions of, of hair and ideal hair. So um, a lot of discussion about gold.
0: Yeah, so it's so fascinating. I I love hearing about that. And I think when I was reading, it may have been your work that I was reading or another book on beauty cultures. And I was just I loved that I read that of course they had pearls crushed into like the tooth recipes and pearly whites I was yeah I was like oh my god that's where pearly whites come from like I'd never even thought about where that came from Mm -hmm. and there you go so that was really exciting (laughs) and the other thing I wanted to ask you is about some of the tools that were kind of popular at the time sometimes in in museums you get to see a few of the tools that people were using but do you want to tell us about some of those?
1: Sure. So um, for your hair, um, you'd often need um, a comb or a sponge to sort of apply these concoctions. Um, they weren't used to washing their hair like we know it. They often just sort of comb things through it. So there's lots of combs in, for example, the v and which are amazing to look at. And cloths, lots of cloths. You might want to wrap your hair in a cloth. Um, you might want to apply a facial wash with a cloth but it's also used to strain mixtures. So sort of like a, we use a sieve, it would sort of be used to, to strain it. Lots of distillation equipment, so bain-maries and alembics. The sun was an important tool for, for them to use. And then if you think about um, you know, specific things like eyebrows, well, they, they use tweezers and um, almost created like little wax strips by using a resin and then a um, cloth and pulling it off. Toothpicks, things like that, for getting out those nitty gritty bits in your teeth. Yeah, there's there's a whole host. Oh, and the other good one is gloves. So as well as having a fair hand, you wanted to have a soft, smooth hand. So um, as well as sort of just wearing gloves to protect them from the cold, you might find people putting in uh, sort of mixtures in their gloves. So your hands are sort of soaking in this mixture, sort of like a hand mask. So I think that's a, a that's a great one to think about. It's
0: so interesting. Obviously, a lot of the things we still do. It's just it's quite amazing, isn't it? The other thing I was going to ask you was obviously then sunburn not a good look. I imagine at the time if no. you're an elite woman. So is there anything? Because of course the Tudor queens, you know, great horsewomen and and all this sort mm-hmm. of stuff, playing lots of sports outside. So what did they do? Was there any kind of sunscreen recipe to protect you from from getting burnt?
1: There are some sunscreen recipes. Erin, my supervisor, would be the perfect person to tell you about them because we've done some work in the lab with the chemistry department at the university, and she did, you know, all these experiments to figure out the efficacy of these sunblocks, essentially. The only thing I can remember about their efficacy is that um, egg whites have an SPF of
0: one. <laughs> okay, so not not that great. But not that <laughs> something,
1: effective. So to something, my I suppose.
0: <laughs> Excellent. No, that's really interesting. All right. So these practices you mentioned, obviously a lot of things are coming from Venice, and then they're kind of making their way around Europe. So. Is there anywhere else where these uh, recipes are, are most popular first or coming out of first?
1: Well they just they go back to the ancient sources so Dioscorides and Avicenna and Pliny lots of discussion about the properties of different ingredients date back to their writing and often authors of these beauty recipes cite ancient authors almost to give their you know their book a little bit more clout I guess So you've got the ancient sources and then medieval ones too. The big one is the Trotula. And again, we just see recipes from the Trotula coming out, being essentially repeated in early modern English recipe books. And then, yes, so Italy was such a big um, influence because they had this sort of nascent uh, industry of the books of secrets. So lots of beauty secrets and household secrets and artistic secrets circulating. And this was translated into English, like a lot of the recipe books from Italy, and it was a hit, and I think that sort of sparked all the, all the English editions that followed, so definitely an important source was the Italian literature, and, and, and as well as the empirical literature, literature the theoretical um, treatises were important to people like Ferenz Waller. Their work was translated into English and, you know, incredibly important.
0: Yes, I love books of secrets. I just, mm-hmm. oh, they sound so good, don't they? What can it's you It's a great find- name for them. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So in your research, have you found that a lot of the recipes actually work? Have you tested many of them? You mentioned your supervisor doing some sunscreen testing. Have you done any testing yourself?
1: Yes, we have done a couple, um, only the sort of safe and easy ingredients, and it's a mixed bag, I guess. Some of them do feel quite nice on your skin, things with like, you know, nice herbal ingredients like rose water, rose meat, all the floral ingredients, they're they're really quite lovely. There's a recipe for shine, I remember, that I think it might have used egg white, and one of my students tried it. And it didn't sort of show up on my skin, but on her skin, it had sort of a really lovely sort of luminosity to it. So I guess that sort of makes the point that every, everyone's different and everyone will respond differently to, to different mixtures. The recipes that are focused on color, I think could definitely have worked. Often one source will give you about, you know, 10 options to remove your freckles. That doesn't sort of give you that much confidence in an in, you know, individual recipe but the ones with pigments, sort of pigments for your cheeks, of course that would work. And in fact, the hair dyes, they're just rooted in material dye recipes, material dye re- re- um, methods. So they're using ingredients that in fact have natural dyes in them. And the processes that are used to drawn out the natural dye, you know, definitely would have worked. And then there's things um, just sticking with the hair dye. Things like sulfur and um, urine and very alkaline solutions like lye, they definitely would have worked because they decolorize the hair, right? They sort of disperse the natural melanin pigments in your hair. So they absolutely would have worked. My obsession at the moment is looking at the back of all of the things I use, you know, on my face and my skin. And often, especially in those sort of natural products, we see, you know, the same things are coming up the same ingredients are, are being used. And then you can um, do a little bit of research on specific ingredients that are used. For example, Hannah Wally uses lemon juice and salt. And um, lemons have AHAs, which some of your listeners may know, alpha hydroxy acids. So they're used even in skincare today and sort of advertised as sort of a refresh it for your skin right and salt would be sort of like an exfoliant it would sort of remove away the dead skin so um, there's definitely logic to some of them not logic to all of them though (laughs) that the the one i was reading uh, earlier today was about removing hair from your forehead and you had to buy some beef and and let it go off to the extent that it got vermin in it so i guess that's like maggots they were called vermin in the text And then you have to pluck out the maggots or vermin and let them dry in the sun and then grind them to a powder and then apply them to your forehead. Now I just can't imagine that working. <laughs> you'd have to I give can't. it a test. <laughs> well, you'd be welcome to if you want to volunteer.
0: <laughs> yeah, I do love the the crazier recipes too that you know ask for unicorn horn and all sorts of yeah. strange, interesting things and lots of steps. I always find the steps really interesting, like yes, dry it out first, then you know, do this to it and that.
1: Dry it out, then moisten it, then dry yeah. it out again, then moisten it. <laughs> so. Like
0: I wonder if they where they got that from. Did they actually attempt that, or was it some man just sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I'll just write <laughs> that down. <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to ask you was a lot of the times there isn't a lot of detail in terms of, you know, like you were saying quantities or exactly the steps that you need to, to take. Do you think this is because they were so well known or why do you think this is?
1: I I think that they wouldn't have necessarily known what they were doing for each recipe just because there's so many. I just don't think that all of them would have been you know circulating to the extent that it would just have been a given that people would have understood what to do I think that they retain an element of flexibility because Mm -hmm. they don't expect you know you can't do an online supermarket order to get all the things you need right sometimes you've just got to you know settle with what you've got at home and of course the quantity that you make could change you could make a very tiny bit just for one use or a lot for you know months of use the other source that I think would have been quite important to them is the apothecary, maybe you, they could have got more instructions from their apothecary um, on, on how to sort of conduct some of these um, methods, but definitely there's an element of ambiguity that can be quite frustrating when we're trying to recreate them, but that's also sort of part of the experiment, I guess
0: yeah part of the fun and yeah. I just had a question about makeup as well so we were talking about Elizabeth and how you were saying there's not really a reliable source about the big thick layer of mm-hmm. lead um, makeup in terms of just other makeup was that popular at the Tudor court or was it more like you said just enhancing your natural beauty and features
1: it's, yeah so when you say makeup do you mean like um, what so we like, t- like a paint
0: like a sort of paint application <laughs> in a way I suppose
1: There definitely would have been elements of that. Um, However, they would have faced a lot of derision from the sort of derogatory comments from people sort of absolutely disdaining the use of makeup. It was understood as sort of trickery, deceitful. Men were really worried about being tricked and it was sort of seen to contradict the hand of God. So I... I'm not sure elite women would necessarily have wanted to advertise the, their use of sort of thicker makeup covering themselves up. but I absolutely think that the beautifying physics, so the the waters and the oils to t- sort of improve your natural appearance, they must have just been pervasive. I can imagine people like Elizabeth would have been you know, they were really worried about how they looked, so I'm sure they would sort of be keen to to try anything that that might possibly work.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Maybe we should stop applying the powder and just be luminous like the Tudor (laughs) court. I like that idea. I have a very shiny face, so I'm (laughs) going with that. I like it. Um, And I've also read that elite women often shared cosmetic recipes, which I really liked that. So can you tell us a little bit about this practice at all?
1: Yeah, so um, a lot of surviving letters tell us about people trying to source different products that they've heard of a lot of the times this is actually in between courts which i think is quite nice it's almost like a beautiful diplomacy or something like that Um, you know women are writing to each other asking for you know the the glove mixture i told you about or an amazing water that uses saffron and they were held with high regard they were sort of you know you could trade them you could keep them secret or you could give them to your friends so, definitely lots of movement between courts and obviously within courts as well. And then uh, there's also the fact that there are women that are writing all of these things down and they're keeping them right in their, in their homes for their family's use. So, we have some um, surviving manuscripts, but also printed sources written by women and they're sharing their secrets or the secrets that they've heard. And in the back of one of them by um, Talbot, she says, about um, she's gotten these uh, recipes from a community of people. And yes, in this community are men, you know, knights and gentlemen and doctors, but there are also, you know, like uh, dozens of women that have contributed to her compendium, you like. So I, I really do think there was a community of knowledge um, within, you know, between women in terms of exchanging these, these secrets and these you know, the ones they found effective and the ones that, you know, didn't work, you know, it's not worth trying. Definitely some exchange going on.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love hearing about those networks that that perhaps Mm -hmm. we don't hear about that often. One example that pops to my head, which isn't a beauty recipe, though, it's a medical recipe, but Lady Lyle over in Calais was doing Mm -hmm. quite a bit of that. So she'd send letters with, oh, here's my cure for, you know, certain afflictions that people were facing at court so yeah. i wonder if in there somewhere i haven't read all her letters yet if she has some beauty recipes that would be an interesting thing to to definitely look definitely worth
1: a look i think yeah, yeah. they're, the they're one fabulous those letters the one that's most sort of notorious to my knowledge is Isabella d'Este um from Italy. she is sort of you know the keeper of the secrets and in some respects she's um notorious for them so
0: fascinating i've loved this discussion now, Victoria, at the end of our episodes, what we like to do on talking to you just, is just play what I call a game of 10 to go. So some questions to get to know you a little bit better. So are you ready to do that?
1: I am ready. Thank you.
0: <laughs> so what was the last book that you either read or that
1: you bought? Uh, well, the last book I read was called Educated by Tara Westover. It's a novel, but it was um, really moving and I would definitely recommend it.
0: Fantastic. My my to be read list always grows after every single episode. <laughs> um, and what was a favorite childhood toy?
1: I don't think I had sort of like one favorite soft te- soft toy or anything like that, but I, I was a, a fan of Barbies. My Barbies would go in nice places with me.
0: Oh, me too. I actually still have some of my Barbies. I, I absolutely love them. I was Barbie crazy. <laughs> and what about, what's an ideal Saturday night for you? Maybe when We're not in lockdown, just in normal circumstances.
1: Yeah, I guess um, maybe going out somewhere for for a nice long dinner um, with with friends would be nice.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. I'm really looking forward to being
1: able to do that. (laughs) Um, And what about
0: when you're working and you're writing and researching, do you have any kind of rituals that you you do or that you follow? Um,
1: I make myself licorice tea um, Mm. pretty religiously. Uh, I can't think of any others I, I'm I'm not a, I have to walk around a bit I, I can't sit still for too long which is not not to my advantage.
0: <laughs> hard when you're trying to do riding isn't it I know I yeah, find it hard it too. Yeah. And what's a favorite holiday destination?
1: Well I have to say Venice has a, a very close place to my heart I've you know been there a couple of times for sort of a longer stay and I think it really helps you to sort of enjoy the city beyond the, the tourist sites. So if I could go anywhere at the moment, I think it would be Venice.
0: Is it because of the link to the beauty culture or you just liked it beforehand?
1: I liked it before, but um, it's definitely, you know, strengthened our connection. (laughs) Oh, wonderful.
0: And what about a favorite comfort food for you?
1: I like a um, pepperoni pizza or um, Whitaker's chocolate. Um, It's a New Zealand brand. It's the best.
0: And what about um, when you need to have a little break and unwind? What do you like to do?
1: I really like Pilates. Pilates class sort of helps me sort of relax, um, going for a walk. And I like cooking as well. So, you know, just making a yummy dinner or something like that is kind of good to unwind.
0: What's a new skill that you would like to learn?
1: If I could have any new skill, I'd love to play the violin, I just, it's my favorite musical instrument, but I, I didn't start when I was young, so it, I think it's a bit late, but I would love to be able to play the violin.
0: Never too late. Do you play yeah. another musical instrument?
1: I can play the piano. I've looked into um, taking violin lessons, but they're not that um, available and you no. have to buy a violin as well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> That's the other thing. And are
0: you more, would you describe yourself more as a morning person or a night person?
1: I would say a morning person, not an early morning person though.
0: And lucky last, what is something that always makes you smile?
1: I would say cats and dogs. I love cats and dogs. So if I just go on a walk and, you know, see some dogs in the park, I would say that always makes me smile without a doubt.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's so true. And do you have any pets yourself?
1: No, I would really love one, especially at the moment in lockdown. But um, Mm -hmm. hopefully soon. Yeah.
0: That'd be lovely. And the very last thing is a Tudor takeaway. So I asked my guests for something that our listeners can go off and explore after the episode. Sometimes people recommend books, songs to listen to, shows to watch. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us?
1: Do you know what? I would just really encourage your listeners to try some of these recipes. It's really fun and it's the best way to sort of find out a bit about beauty culture and Tudor England. And um, I have a bit of a shameless plug in that respect. On my website, you can see some of the original recipes um, and they're all ones that are safe to use and easy to follow. And the ingredients are not completely left field. They're just normal things that you might have. So um, my website is earlymoderngoldilocks.com.
0: Oh, love it! And I will link to that. I'm going to go and have a look at that. I don't. I don't think I'll try the vermin one, but I might. <laughs> I, I might get the up. rosemary. <laughs> I might give the rosemary one a go. That sounds really nice. I like the idea of that. And yes, fabulous. And I will link to your website, so that makes it really easy for our listeners to find your blog, which is great. Brilliant. And we can all follow along with your work. And are you currently working on something now?
1: Well, I've got my PhD, PhD. still going. Yeah, and then um, in about a month's time, I'm actually doing a conference paper on Elizabeth's red hair and how whether or not that sort of made red hair trendy in, in, um, in Elizabethan England. So that's coming up too.
0: Oh, that sounds really great. Oh, well, you'll have to keep us updated so we can follow I along will. with your work. And thank <laughs> you so much for agreeing to come onto the show and talk tutors with us.
1: It was my pleasure. Thanks, Natalie.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind the scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.